At what point did you realize that you were dealing with a serial rapist? This was the same man. He was always covered with a ski mask. He always had a gun or a knife. With his clenched teeth, he said, shut up or I'll kill you. The fear was just overwhelming. Dispatch did receive a call from a male who said that he had chosen his next victim. Sure enough, there was another attack. The sexual acts escalated. There were 50 victims. He almost was in a frenzy. I would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. What did I miss? What did I do wrong? Why didn't I catch him? Some have described this as the most critical, unsolved serial rapist case in the United States. Uh, I would agree with that. I said, he's going to kill his next victim. We're going to have a murder victim on our hand. Hi, I'm Paula Zahn, and tonight we're on the case in Sacramento, California. In the late 1970s, the state capitol was the epicenter of one of the most terrifying violent crime sprees in American history. And as the number of attacks against women continued to climb, police became certain that the same sexual sadist had been responsible for all of them. He would eventually become known as the East Area Rapist. Over time, his signature crimes became even more brazen and forced a community paralyzed by fear to wonder if he would ever be stopped. October 5th, 1976. It was 6.30 in the morning when Jane Carson's husband an Air Force officer left for work. The 30-year-old mother and her three-year-old son were cuddled in bed when Jane heard footsteps in the hallway. I said to my husband, what are you doing back here? I thought he had forgotten something. But when Jane looked up, there was a stranger in the doorway wearing a ski mask. And despite the flashlight shining in her eyes, she could see the large butcher knife in his hand. What did he say? With his clenched teeth, he said, shut up or I'll kill you. His voice was terrifying, but Jane wasn't just afraid for her life. I have my three-year-old son in bed with me. You can imagine the fear. Within seconds, Jane and her son had been bound with shoelaces the attacker had brought with him. He tied my hands and my feet he gagged me 
and he blindfolded me. And he did the same to my three-year-old son. My heart was beating so fast, I thought, what's he here for? Then, the man made his violent intentions all too clear. He untied my feet. And the minute he did that, I knew what he was there for. While the masked man sexually assaulted Jane, the young mother remained focused on her child. What have you done with my son? I tried to feel my son next to me, and he was gone. The rape was immaterial. The fear was just overwhelming, just overwhelming. Somehow, Jane managed to maintain her composure, but it wasn't until after the assault ended that she was certain that her son was safe. He put my son back next to me. So I knew he was alive. Jane believed that her attacker would flee the scene quickly. But she was wrong. She was stunned when she heard him rummaging through her kitchen. He started opening the refrigerator and rattling pots and pans. And then he'd come back in. He'd tell us, don't move or I'll come back and kill you. After Hours of torment, her attacker finally left, and the young mother was able to free herself from her bindings. I was finally able to get the blindfold off, and then whispered to my son, I said, we've got to go. Outside, Jane screamed for help, and a neighbor contacted police. Detective Carol Daly responded to the 911 call. Jane Carson was severely traumatized. What do you remember about your conversation? Jane was a professional person. She was a nurse. She was a captain in the Air Force Reserves, but she was in shock. It was like disbelief as to what had just happened to her. Investigators found pry marks on a window that appeared to have been the intruder's point of entry. Then, Jane mentioned that her home had recently been burglarized. He took my son's piggy bank and my driver's license. Police concluded that the same man had been responsible for both crimes. He was in the house two weeks earlier. The evidence indicated that Jane's attacker had been stalking her for weeks before the assault. Investigators collected the shoelaces that had been used to bind Jane and her son. But unfortunately, there was little else to go on. Were investigators able to find any evidence in her home? No fingerprints, because he wore gloves. 
And since the man had been wearing a ski mask, the young mother was only able to provide a vague description of her attacker. I would say he was probably my age or possibly a little younger, maybe six foot. As detectives analyzed Jane's story, they began to notice frightening similarities to four other sexual assaults on the east side of Sacramento. Each of those women had been attacked in their homes by a man wearing a ski mask. When we were looking at all of the rapes, we realized that this was the same man. The commonality was his method of operation. Once he had his victims subdued, everything was the same. And the number of attacks continued to grow. After Jane's rape, a month later, in the same neighborhood, another victim was raped. A task force was created to capture the sexual sadist called the East Area Rapist. And as word of his one-man crime spree spread, a wave of fear was beginning to take hold of the entire city. Sacramento police were investigating a terrifying series of rapes. The crime shared many unusual characteristics, and detectives had become convinced that the same man was responsible for all of the attacks. A task force was assembled to catch the assailant, who was known as the East Area Rapist. But as the number of unsolved assaults continued to grow, so was the wave of fear engulfing the city. Thirty-year-old Jane Carson was the fifth woman to survive a violent sexual attack at the hands of the East Area Rapist. And it seemed like nearly every day there was news of another attack. The numbers kept going up and up. Police had placed the city of Sacramento and its neighboring communities on high alert. The helicopter would fly over at night with a spotlight searching for the sky. Anywhere you went, everybody was talking about the East Area Rapist. The Sheriff's Task Force urged the public to call in anything unusual they saw and do whatever they could to help one another stay safe. I imagine a lot of women in the area are scared and are nervous. Uh, if they could just kind of get to know each other's habits, their neighbor's habits, and call in if they see or hear anything suspicious at all. Uh, don't be afraid to get involved. How afraid were women in the community? Everybody had guns in their houses. Hardware stores sold out of blocks. People barricaded themselves in their houses. And even though Detective Daly was investigating the case, she was not immune to the fear. I would lay in bed at night and I would think, what would it be like to find a flashlight shining in my eyes? 
the rapists preyed primarily on white women ages 20 to 30. Investigators noticed that the attacks had a clear pattern. What were the commonalities between these rapes? He always had a gun or a knife. He would get the victim tied up. He was always covered with a ski mask. Every one of the victims said that he talked through clenched teeth in a harsh whisper. The consensus was that he was young, probably in his early 20s, about 5'11", dirty blonde, light brown hair. Every new report added details to the profile the task force was developing. Perhaps the most shocking was the level of preparation before each attack. Were you able to determine if he had cased the victim's homes and had been there before? Oh, absolutely. We pulled up burglary reports, and he had definitely been in the homes prior to the rapes. A lot of times, he would set it up. He would unlock a door or unlock a window and then wait until they went to sleep. The serial rapist also took precautions in case something unexpected happened during an attack. He would turn off an air conditioner so that he could hear if anybody came in. He would leave a back door open so he could run if anybody was coming. But while he was with a victim, he often lingered long after the assault was over. He had this obsession with wandering around the house, looking for food, drinking beer, going out in the patio. And he continued to torment his victims in the weeks following the attack. After the rape, sometimes he would call and say, you know who this is. Other times, he would simply breathe heavily into the phone. Enforcement captured several phone calls the East Area rapist made to survivors. where a victim who had been through that trauma and having this guy call her up and say, basically, I'm coming back, you could imagine the fear that she would have. But none of the recordings or other evidence police collected brought them any closer to identifying a suspect. And the longer he eluded authorities, 
the greater his appetite for violence. The sexual acts escalated. He almost was in a frenzy. I said, he's gonna kill his next victim. We're gonna have a murder victim on our hand. Sacramento Sheriff's investigators were working around the clock to catch a serial rapist who had turned the area into his personal hunting ground. But as the months rolled on, the terrifying assaults of the East Area rapist had only become more frequent and more violent. As the level of fear in Sacramento continued to grow, women in the community mobilized in protest. We believe that rapes cannot continue the way they have. People were angry at us because we hadn't caught this guy. Back then, Detective Carol Daly was focused on trying to encourage women to defend themselves. One thing I want to emphasize, ladies, is for you not to be polite. You must injure your attacker. Authorities were flooded with tips from citizens who believed they had seen the East Area rapists stalking their neighborhoods. Did anyone ever see the rapist's face? The composite that we have was done from witnesses who had seen prowlers. The East Area Rapist seemed to revel in his ability to elude law enforcement. He even contacted police to warn them of an upcoming attack. Dispatch did receive a call from a male voice who said that he had chosen his next victim and that there was nothing they could do about it. Sure enough, there was another attack. To call dispatch and let them know shows he wanted the fear in everybody. You're not going to catch me. Detectives realized they had been close to a number of locations where the East Area Rapist had been, but he always managed to avoid capture. I was a patrol sergeant at the time. I drove by the house, the actual house where he was inside, and we later found out that he had sat out on the porch in the dark and drank several bottles of beer that he had taken from the victim's refrigerator. Probably just watched me driving around. This man had no fear. The serial rapist also followed the case in the newspapers. In fact, he seemed to intentionally defy the theories police provided. We had mentioned in the media that there had never been a man present in the home in bed with a victim. And our next rape was a couple in bed together. While the rapist had expanded his victim pool to include couples, 
the attacks still had many of the same signature characteristics. He would have shoelaces. He would throw them on the bed and tell the woman, tie your husband's hands behind his back. Tie them tight. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Once he was certain the couple was bound, blindfolded, and gagged, he would force his female victim into another room where he would sexually assault her. The male victim was immobilized and tormented. And he would put dishes on the man's back. And he would say, if I hear these dishes rattle, I will kill your wife. The level of detail involved in the East Area Rapist planning led investigators to wonder if he was actually one of their own. We thought he either had a law enforcement career or maybe military police, but it just seemed like he knew everything that we were doing. Enforcement increased patrols and had special teams prepared to pursue the suspect if he was spotted. We had deputies out there that were just waiting to see if they could find somebody suspicious and uh, never happened. After three years, the amount of unsolved cases had grown to a staggering number. How many victims did he claim in Northern California? There were 50 victims. And then, suddenly, the attacks in the region came to an end. I believe that he left Sacramento County because we were probably so close. And that raised a disturbing possibility. Had the East Area Rapist simply taken his campaign of terror to another area? My feeling was that somebody like that never stops. The East Area Rapist terrorized the Sacramento community for nearly three years. During that time, he was believed to be responsible for as many as 50 unsolved sexual assaults. Then, the attacks came to a sudden end. For investigators, it was impossible to imagine that the sadistic predator would stop without being caught. And that raised a chilling possibility. Had the East Area Rapist simply moved on. Investigators believe the East Area Rapist had left Northern California because police were hot on his trail. I think he knew that they were getting too close to him. And that's why he had to get away from that area. But where had he gone? Detective Larry Crompton feared he knew the answer. Crompton had discovered a series of savage attacks in Southern California. 
that displayed many of the East Area Rapist's signature elements. But there was one chilling difference. These crimes had all ended with murder. I got looking at those reports and I felt that it is our person. Still, Crompton couldn't convince investigators in Southern California the crimes were connected. Nobody would believe me. And Crompton watched in horror as the string of murders continued. In July of 1981, a real estate agent in Goleta, California, made a gruesome discovery in the master bedroom of one of his listings. What did the real estate agent walk into? The agent found the nude body of Sherry Domingo and her boyfriend, Greg Sanchez. When police arrived, it appeared that the couple had been ambushed while sleeping and then bludgeoned to death. They never found the murder weapon, but they think it may have been the gardening tool that was at the residence. Sherry had been tied up during the attack. She had been bound with her hands behind her back and her ankles crossed and bound, but the ligatures had been removed from her body. Was Sherry Domingo sexually assaulted? The crime was sexually motivated. The killer left biological evidence. Sherry's daughter, 16-year-old Debbie Domingo, had been at a friend's house that night. She still remembers the terror she felt when she saw the police activity at the house. There were news camera crews everywhere and police cars everywhere, yellow tape around the house. Before the frightened teenager could enter the home, officers gave her the heartbreaking news. They sat me down and, and told me that there were two bodies in the house and that they believed that one of them was my mother. I knew that the other one had to have been Greg. Debbie was stunned. It seemed impossible to believe that her loving mother had been the victim of such a violent crime. Could you think of anyone who would have had a reason to hurt your mother? No, absolutely not. You spent time with Greg. Could you think of anybody who had a reason to hurt him? No. the investigators studied the crime scene, they explored the possibility that the double homicide might be linked to several other murders in the area. In each of those cases, the victims had been ambushed in their beds by an intruder who killed them during sexually motivated attacks. They were factoring case linkage at that time by modus operandi, and they did find linkage. They had been blitzed attacked in the middle of the night while they were sleeping, and the victims had been bound. They had been bludgeoned to death. Despite the clear patterns in the crimes, 
Police were not able to pin down conclusive evidence that the murders had been committed by a serial killer. Then, just when it seemed the rash of killings had come to an end, authorities in nearby Irvine, California, were called to another shockingly similar crime scene. A local realtor had just found 18-year-old Janelle Cruz murdered in her bed. What did investigators see at the murder scene? Investigators found Janelle's body. She was nude from the waist down. She had been bludgeoned to death. Could they make any determination about what was used to strike her? Her stepfather reported that a pipe wrench was missing from the scene, and her wound marks were consistent with a pipe wrench type object. Abrasions on Janelle's wrists suggested that she had been tied up during the attack. There was also evidence that she had been the victim of a sexual assault. The hardworking teenager had been home alone that night after she missed a family vacation in Mexico to earn money for college. She sounded pretty motivated and disciplined. She wanted to work in a law office. She was soft-spoken, but you know, she was kind of tough too if she had to be. She was really good-hearted. As investigators searched the area, they found evidence that the attacker had carefully cased Janelle's home before entering. In Janelle Cruz's backyard, they found shoe print impressions in the dirt. It appeared that the offender had prowled in her backyard. It looked like the offender most likely got through the rear slider. The careful planning in each of the string of murders only further convinced investigators in Northern California that the East Area Rapist had become a killer. I felt that, yes, it is our person, but I couldn't prove it. Detectives actually sent down memos that their offender may have turned into a murderer. But the debate about the possible connection between the unsolved crimes would rage on for more than a decade, until advances in DNA science finally revealed the terrifying truth. Residents of California had been victimized by two terrifying crime waves. First, there had been 50 unsolved rapes in and around the city of Sacramento. Then, Southern California was tormented by a series of strikingly similar murders. Some investigators believed that both sets of crimes had been committed by the same man. Would modern forensic science be able to confirm that theory? and help bring him to justice. Veteran 
Russian investigator Larry Crompton had spent many sleepless nights wondering how the East Area Rapist had eluded him. For years, I would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. What did I miss? What did I do wrong? Why didn't I catch him? And Crompton wasn't alone. Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert had been just a young girl during the one-man crime wave. And more than two decades later, the fear he created still haunts her hometown. It changed Sacramento. It changed our community. Crompton and Schubert hoped that advances in modern forensic science would allow them to finally provide answers to the survivors of the East Area Rapist. But any hope that DNA testing would solve the case appeared impossible. Unfortunately, in Sacramento County, the, the sexual assault rape kits had all been destroyed. then turned to police in the neighboring county of Contra Costa, California, to see if they might still have evidence for testing. Paul Holes was running their DNA section of their lab, and he says, I can't believe you're calling me because we had the same idea. Supervising criminalist Paul Holes informed Schubert that rape kits from three attacks in Contra Costa County had been preserved. In fact, he already had obtained a full DNA profile of the East Area Rapist from that biological evidence. Holes had even taken the investigation a step further by comparing the East Area Rapist DNA profile to evidence collected by police during the series of unsolved murders in Southern California. The results were chilling. It was a match. It was the same guy that was doing these attacks. For Larry Crompton, the confirmation of his long-held theory was a bitter pill to swallow. When I finally had the proof that the homicides and the rapes were by the same person, it made me feel bad because if I had caught him, those people wouldn't have been killed. Once the two crime sprees had been formally linked, journalist Michelle McNamara came up with a name for the lone suspect police across the state were now pursuing. She called the savage predator responsible for 50 rapes and more than 10 murders, the Golden State Killer. for those who had survived his rampages, as well as the families who lost loved ones, 
the news reopened deep wounds. I felt sick to my stomach. I grieved for what I had gone through, but I grieved for their loss. Such grief. Such grief. What was your reaction when you found out that your sister had been victimized by a serial killer? Wow, that's one guy that did all these crimes and then there's 50 rapes. It just becomes completely overwhelming. Still, the creation of the Golden State Killer Task Force offered some hope to Debbie Domingo and others who feared the cases had been filed away forever. That meant the world to me. There wasn't just a cardboard file box on a shelf getting dusty. Because of those connections, my mom and Greg were not forgotten. The first question the new task force focused on was why it had been 15 years since the Golden State Killer's last crime. There have been numerous theories of why the crimes ended. Some people think that the offender just had a change of lifestyle, maybe has a family, maybe he is aware of evidence collection and knows that he would not be able to get away with the crimes. Detectives explored the possibility that the Golden State Killer had been arrested for a separate crime and was already behind bars. But DNA testing on every violent felon in California's prisons failed to reveal a match. And so far, there had been no hits in the CODIS database. Some have described this as the most critical, unsolved serial rapist slash murder case, not only in California, but in the United States. I would agree with that. I would challenge somebody to tell us of another unsolved of this magnitude. It needs to be solved. Investigator Erica Hutchcraft now works on the Golden State Killer case full-time in Orange County. What do you think the chances are that you'll ever be able to identify him? If you look at how many pieces of evidence we have, if you look at how many people are dedicated to this crime right now, I do think we will identify him and I do think we will solve this case. What is the major hurdle you face today in trying to solve this case? The question's always been, is he alive or dead? The task facing detectives remains massive, but the desire for the truth is even larger. The answer's in the DNA, that's it. It is in this DNA. The newest technology is phenotyping. Investigators hope that advances in the brand new technology will allow police to create an accurate composite sketch of the Golden State Killer based on his genetic makeup.
another area the task force is focused on, the odd personal items the Golden State Killer took during the attacks. What did he do with all the things that he was stealing? I always think somewhere, somebody in their home has a box full of the trinkets that he stole. Law enforcement believes that the Golden State Killer could be between 58 and 75 years old today. Do you think he's still alive? In my gut, I think yes, probably. For me, it's not so much about the arrest or the conviction or the legal consequences, but for me personally, it's just about the truth being known. Jane Carson, one of the Sacramento survivors, has written a book about her experience. She has dedicated her life to helping others who've suffered the violence of a sexual attack. What do you want our audience to learn from your story? I went from a victim to a survivor to a thriver, and now my mission is to get out there and help other women that have been through similar experiences and say, hey, you're gonna be okay. Turn that pain into power, make that mess into a message. Debbie Domingo and Michelle Cruz remain actively involved in spreading awareness about the crime that tore their lives apart. Even today, there's just so many people that just have no idea about the rapes and the murders. What did this serial killer rob you of? My mom. He robbed me of the experience of knowing her. If you have any information about the Golden State Killer, please call 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-CALL-FBI. You can also visit our Facebook page to learn more about the investigation. I'm Paula Zahn. Please join us again next time when we're back on The Case.